The scripture written in your order of service for our New Testament lesson is a beautiful example of what I hope to talk with you about today, but it's very lengthy, and I have moved in my sermon preparation a little closer to another one, so I will leave this one to you, and maybe you could help, uh, we could talk later about uh, its connection, but let me read to you from a different chapter of uh, Mark, from the very first chapter of the book of Mark, and the, very, uh, the 35th verse, uh, running through the 38th. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to ask you a question today, but I want to be really sure it's the right question. I want to ask you, why don't we take better care of ourselves? Now that is not the same thing as asking, why aren't you taking better care of yourself? Which is just another way of saying, you look terrible. That, that is a question that provokes guilt and shame. It's the kind of accusatory question that makes people stop going to see their doctor or stop calling their mother or stop coming to church. Why aren't you taking better care of yourself? It's the kind of question that makes you think, you know, I can get beat up in my self-confidence a lot cheaper other places. Thanks very much. That's not the question I want to ask. I want to ask a more theoretical question about not only you, but all of us, about the human condition. Why don't we take better care of ourselves? What's up with that? That question doesn't accuse. It assumes that maybe you're doing great with self-care most of the time, but we all have bad days and stressful situations. And so when we don't take care of ourselves, I'm just, I'm just wondering, why is that? I mean, the studies have all been done. The, the results are incontrovertible. We know what to do. Why don't we do it? What's going on inside us in the world within that makes us stop behaving in our own best interest? That, that is a spiritual question and a really important one. Maybe we stop taking care of ourselves because we just lack the information about how to do that. That's that's possible. We just don't know any better. It's just that for most of us here in Greenville, USA, it's unlikely because, I don't know, TV, radio, newspapers, magazines, internet, cell phones, churches, conferences, blogs, podcasts, schools, libraries, Dr. Oz, and Oprah. <laughs> it's actually kind of hard to escape the information on self-care. It is for me anyway. But maybe it's an information problem related to the church, and that I can understand, because I know that if you only come in here for worship on Sunday morning, you might have no idea that we have nine different ways for you to receive pastoral care and self-help care through our pastoral care ministries, 15 if you count the subgroups, because they happen off-site, they happen after hours, they happen in homes or in hospitals or assisted living facilities, some happen in total confidentiality so you don't see them. 
That's why today we have placed them in such a highly visible place that you had to crawl over them to get into worship and you will have to crawl over them to get out. And today, if at no other time, you shall behold them in all their glory and you shall put a face with a name and you shall find out how you can get the help you might need or be a part of the ministry that you need to be part of. There's one more thing you might do, by the way, as you leave here today. We have, for example, Stephen Ministers. Because of the vision and hard work and heart of Ann Quattlebaum, who just this month steps down from her role in leadership there, we have a bereavement meal delivery ministry because of the vision, heart, and hard work of Barbara McMaster. We, have, we were able to host 30 uh, or more, 31 or two, Weary caregivers for a lovely dinner last night because of the generosity of the late Michael Stogner. Most all of our ministries were born in the heart and mind of a fellow member. So you could do a lot worse than just to approach any one of them on your way out and say, thank you for the behind-the-scenes ministry that you do. So now that the information problem is solved and we have no more excuses... Let's get back to my question. Why don't we, you thought I had moved off. No, why don't we take better care of ourselves? I think there's a lot more going on than information. I want to describe for you a vicious cycle that I believe is at work in us and has a lot to do with why we don't take better care of ourselves. And the first is, I think that when we are in pain, we confuse relief with healing. I've said this to you before because it is such an important idea for me, and it bears repeating. I would never have put those two words side by side had I not heard a recovering alcoholic say something so honest and clear that it took my breath away. He said that when he returned to his drug of choice, he always found relief, but never healing. Relief is, a, is quick. And relief feels good, but it never lasts and it becomes a trap. Healing will almost certainly take longer, but it's lasting. And it's worth the struggle because the end is freedom. Did you ever notice that the story of Noah has a really strange ending? In the ninth chapter of Genesis, we're told after all that Noah had accomplished, all the faithfulness he showed and all the great things he did, when it was all over... The old man got drunk and fell asleep naked in his tent with the door wide open for the whole world to see and became the subject of derision and shame all over again, but this time for all the wrong reasons. They could have left that out, you know. <laughs> if Noah had had a good image consultant, I don't think we would know that story. And I used to think that that story was in there to make sure that we saw that Noah was a human being and, and had clay feet and we wouldn't, he wouldn't be deified and that God could be the star of the story. But now, after a few years doing pastoral care, now I, I wonder if it isn't the Bible's way of saying nobody walks away unscathed from trauma. 
I mean, look at it. The, he worked like a slave for years without pay. He endured ridicule and the rejection of his society. He witnessed the utter destruction of his whole world. And then he was trapped in the hull of a boat in a water-covered world for a month without any way of knowing if he would ever get out. Pretty horrifying. And throughout the story, we're never told anything about the state of Noah's mind or emotions his world within. It's as though he has no feelings at all. But nobody walks away unscathed from trauma. And what do we do with pain? We self-medicate as fast as we can. It's not that we're not trying to take care of ourselves. It's just that we choose relief over healing and prolong our suffering. And even if we're not officially addicts, you and I do this same thing all the time, every day. Food, we now know, food is medicine. Nutrition is what enables us to thrive. But 40% of what is sold to us in grocery stores fails to meet the nutritionist standard for, for health. 40%. If, it, if it's processed food that comes in a box or a bag or a can or, God help us, a tube, It's probably doing more harm to us than good. And we already know that, so why do we keep eating it? Because it's comfort food. And millions of Americans have a diet that is exclusively non-nutritious comfort food. And then get angry at our doctor when he can't give us a pill that undoes all the damage we've done. Or maybe we, we medicate the pain in our marriage by having an affair. Or we medicate the pain of being disrespected at work by padding the expense reports. Or we medicate the pain of feeling insignificant by feasting on media that makes us feel good about our bigotries. Or we bully a weaker person so that we can feel powerful. Or we just veg out in front of whatever garbage is on TV or the internet to escape for an hour after hour after hour. We choose relief over healing. And then comes the second half of the cycle, the morning after, when we wake up and feel so awful and so angry at ourselves and so defeated, and now we're consumed with shame. And because we're filled with shame, we have yet another reason not to take care of ourselves. I mean, why not? We should be punished. It's, we have no one but ourselves to blame. We don't deserve any better. Who are we to go asking for help now when it's our own fault? We're unworthy of self-care. had a close friend in Nashville I worked with almost every day, and, and one day I noticed that he just suddenly started smoking a pipe. It came out of nowhere. He was smoking a pipe and smoking it all day long, so I asked him about it, and he said that he'd been chewing tobacco for years, but his doctor had really hammered him about the dangers of chewing tobacco, so he switched to a pipe. And I said, you know it's not the chewing that's the problem, right? It's the tobacco that causes cancer, and you're just, you're just gone to inhaling it instead of, I don't know, swallowing. And he said, I kid you not, he said to me, well, you got to do something self-destructive. And I said, actually, you don't. <laughs> actually, life is dangerous enough, and you don't have to cooperate in any way with any threat to your well-being. 
What is the voice in your head that's telling you you have to do something self-destructive? But you know, a short time later, I learned that he had been abused as a boy, and that was the voice in his head. You never stop being that boy. And when we're mistreated like that, or we mistreat ourselves, we may start to feel we're unworthy of self-care. And so we move to the third phase of the cycle. We seek relief instead of healing. We feel unworthy of anything better. And then that unworthiness makes us afraid to ask for help. In the 1970s, behavioral psychologist Stanley Milgram wanted to study what happens when people ask strangers for help. So he sent his graduate students, isn't that what they do? Send the graduate students to do the the hard work. He sent them into the subways of New York to ask strangers to give up their seats. The good news is they found that about 70% of the people gave up their seat. But they also found that going through that experience was one of the most traumatic experiences his students ever had. And Milgram was surprised by the data and decided to see for himself what that was all about, so he boarded a train, and as he approached his first stranger, he was overcome with fear and dread, and even after taking the man's seat, he felt his face blanch, he put his head between his knees, and he said, I actually felt as though I might perish. It's not easy to ask for help. And maybe this is what Jesus meant when he said we must die to self. And maybe it's why he held up as heroes the obnoxious neighbor who comes banging on our door for bread at midnight or the persistent widow who won't leave the judge alone. They had at least learned to ask for help. And that is no small thing. It breaks the cycle. And it shows that we're ready to receive what God so wants to give us. Elijah the prophet had just had a really good day when he went and messed it all up. He had just had a, he had single-handedly defended the God of Israel against 450 prophets of Baal, the fertility God of Ahab and Jezebel. Baal had just failed to show up for work, but Elijah's God had made a mighty show of strength for all the world to see. And had Elijah not lost his head, it could have all ended right there triumphantly and for the better. But Elijah was overcome with self-righteous indignation. And he had his people turn on the prophets of Baal and kill them all. And just like that, Elijah was a fugitive from justice, a man on the run from an army a Hebrew who had broken the sixth commandment, a failure and a criminal without a friend in the world. He ran to the desert and he ran and he ran until he could run no more. And he gave up and he prayed to die. Elijah was beyond asking for help. Too defeated, too ashamed, But then, in the pitch black darkness of his despair, an angel touched him. And without blaming or judging or commentary of any kind, said, you need to eat something. 
And the angel fed him and let him rest. And then the angel fed him and let him rest. And the angel said, you can't make this journey without nourishment, and I am here to take care of you until you are able to go on. This is the heart of God. No loving parent can see their child as unworthy. Jesus wept over Jerusalem not because the people failed to live perfect lives. No, he wept because they refused to let him care for them. They wouldn't let him, let him nurture them with a mother's unconditional love. There is no condemnation in Christ. And the heart of God breaks when we refuse God's care. Can you hear that? The heart of God breaks when we refuse God's care. This is the cycle. We don't take care of ourselves because in our pain... We choose relief over healing, and then we're ashamed, and so we're afraid to ask for help. And because we won't get the help we need, we look for quick relief, and then are ashamed, so we're afraid to ask for help. And because we won't go to help, we get quick relief. And it's a sad and vicious cycle. But it's not the only cycle. There is another cycle, and it spins in the other Direction. It spirals upward and not downward. Call it a virtuous circle. Call it the circle of life. I switched scriptures this morning because Mark's gospel, which is the oldest and closest to the source of all the gospels, and, and in that early introduction to Jesus, Mark, among the first things he wants us to know about Jesus in the first chapter, brace yourselves, all ye of Protestant work ethic, brace yourselves. The first, one of the first things he wants us to know about Jesus is that sometimes Jesus just walked off the job. Mark says that the first thing Jesus did every day was self-care. He started every day asking for help. That stops the cycle right there. He submitted to God's healing. And he received God's blessing. And he heard God say, You are my child, whom I love, and in whom I am well pleased. And when the crowds got to be too much, or the day got to be too long, Jesus walked off the job leaving the sick unhealed and leaving the hungry unfed until he was healed and until he was fed. Are you prepared to call Jesus selfish? Even Jesus knew we cannot give what we have not received. He said he could do nothing without God's power. You may have heard that Jesus came so we could all go to heaven, but the example he left and the teachings that he taught are about us learning to live in loving interdependence so that heaven takes care of itself. Remember the last time you walked in the woods? Think about the last time you walked in the woods. You know what you don't see when you walk in the woods is that the root systems underground the trees actually wind all around one another. They curl around one another underground, and not only do they 
serve to make the earth steady for one another so they can reach for the light, we now know that they actually nurture one another. Did you know that trees actually feed one another underground? But the one thing you can see when you walk in the woods is that if trees grow close enough to one another, I said, if trees grow close enough to one another, then when a tree falls, it never falls all the way to the ground. It falls gently into the arms of its brothers and sisters. And even when a tree dies, it dies a gentle and good death, which in the forest of God always becomes life again. I want to ask you a question, but I want to be real sure it's the right question. If God cares enough to provide such beautiful interdependence for the trees of the forest, how much more must God want that for you, beloved child? Are not you more valuable than they? 